Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast for comedians of any variety. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this, shall we? Thanks so much if you are a returning listener, and if you are a first-time listener, thanks so, so much. You can find old episodes on iTunes and on SoundCloud, and you can check out old information on thereitispod.com. That theme song is so funky, right? I love it. Neil Brooks did all the music for that. Shout out to Neil Brooks. Thanks for doing it. Sounds fantastic. Can you do us a favor? Well, could you leave a review on iTunes? It helps us tremendously, as does following the podcast on social media, Facebook and Twitter, at There It Is Pod. Such a great episode today. All the episodes are pretty great, and it's not because of me. It's always because of the guest. And today... It's Susan Messing. I have heard her name so many times over the years, and that's because whenever you hear an improviser speak at length about improv, they will mention Susan Messing because she's so knowledgeable and great. As a matter of fact, when I interviewed Sharna Halpern, I asked her off air who I should interview, and she said Susan Messing immediately. She said Susan Messing. And I told Susan Messing that when I met her at the North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival, was so thrilled to get to see her perform, and when she got off stage, I mentioned what Sharna said, and she said, oh, that's sweet. And I asked her, well, can I get you on the podcast? And she said, yeah. (laughs) I couldn't believe it. I was beside myself. Well, it's a really great talk with a lot of fun stuff in there, including one of my favorite There It Is moments. You'll hear it, and we'll talk about it later. Why don't we get right to this fantastic talk with Susan Messing. We recently saw each other. I saw you. I met you for the first time at the North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival. That is correct. That, that was, was fun. It was so fun, right? I had a great time there, and it was really a treat to get to see you and I'd get to speak to you off stage. Aww. Yeah, I. That makes me happy. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Well, one of the things that I really liked was when I when I spoke to you. I said, "Oh gosh, that was so good," and I wish uh, I can get to that level of of being able to improvise. And you said, "Oh, that we're well, just screwing around. It's mostly just not caring." <laughs> I think it is. I think people are worried about improvising correctly. They've heard a bunch of rules. And now they're panicked that they're not playing right. And mm-hmm. uh, I kind of liken that to having sex correctly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you want to have sex right or do you want to get off? Yeah. I, I, would, I would hasten to say that most people would say, I'd like to get off. So for me, rules are suggestions that might get you off faster. How's that? But I've yeah. also seen people break what they perceive to be rules left and right only to have incredible work come out as a result. So I think that alone um, is certainly a push of why Mick created the the way that he looked at 
improv McNapier mm-hmm. and something that I certainly agree with. I, I'm not saying that when I'm at Second City or at I.O. that I'm not supporting the integrity of the building because I absolutely am. Right. Everybody has their thesis and integrity and what they want to show in the work and I'm going to honor the building that I'm in. That said, when I'm playing, I'm going to kind of do what I want. And my friends seem to be perfectly fine with that. And so yeah. is the audience. The audience is oh, perfectly yeah. fine with it. Oh, the audience. Did you see the show on Sunday? Yeah. The, oh, yeah. I, yeah. I got to see you perform with Rachel and with Zach Ward. So, um, now, when, oh, go when ahead. I was performing with, with Rachel, we had... You know, I was still wearing my boot on my foot. And mm-hmm. one of my favorite moments was rolling on the stage and simply hearing the thump of the boot <laughs> help rolling me over. And I was like, this is so much fun right now. And I'm thinking, well, I don't think anybody cares that, you know, that, that I'm, what, not standing around and arguing in the kitchen scene? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would agree with that. I think people were eating up your shows, and I was one of those people. And it was so fun, and it did have this sense of, we're going to have fun, we know what we're doing, let's all have fun. And I think that does take a certain level of not caring, but I I think some people sometimes can take the wrong lesson from not caring, too, and I, I know that you're not. And I'm not correcting you by any means. But I've heard someone once say in regards to Will Ferrell and why he was so great was that he just doesn't care. And that not caring has to do with, and I'm I'm more just trying to figure it out, has to do with not caring the judgment other people might give you or not caring so much about the do it right and more about let's just have fun. Like, let's just screw it. Let's just go out there. I think you're absolutely correct. I think not caring means you're ambivalent and don't care about the integrity of the work. I absolutely do. Right. But that's inherent. That's inherent in me. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be on stage to shit on a stage and go deal with it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Besides, that would be a re- that would be a real prop, and we don't deal with real props. Real shit on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do understand that feeling of when your desire to create supersedes the weirdness you have to go through in order to create, mm-hmm. then good shit comes out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, I, think, I think we turned it into rocket science to justify the fact that improv is such a, a major phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I think that's what happened. I, I think, think that's a very interesting that, theory. Well, think about it. Now improv is used to help Alzheimer's patients stay in the moment. The mm-hmm. applications for improv are incredible. Improv mm-hmm. is used to help people with social anxiety and people on the spectrum with autism. Improv is used, you know, not just to write your scripts, but to help presentations be better, an architect be a better architect and better communicator, um, to help mm-hmm. Fortune 100 people, you know, learn how to agree again. So because people are trying to maybe, dare I say, justify the cost of now what it takes when you become an enterprise because I have friends who go to business schools all over the world and, you know, Fortune 100 companies, and they're being paid a lot of money, then people go, oh, this, there, there must be a, you know, a basic thesis here and a process. <laughs> right. And I'm saying, no, I can still get on a stage, a blank stage with a bank of lights and do it for shits and grins. Right. And not care, except that if I have more fun than anyone else, I win. 
Right. right? Yeah, I so, think that's such a good way to put it. Well, I think it would also screw with, dare I say, the screws with my pay scale. Because people are like, well, you're justifying getting paid this kind of money to teach us how to do that. And I'm saying, hell, I wish that we could all just simply do this. Um, right. But people are going, man, you're having fun. I'd like to access that. And I'm saying, as because I don't do a lot of um, corporate things, I, I you know, I'm... I'm I'm not as interested in that, and those are those are apparently the huge money makers. I don't, I don't like doing that because I have I know people who do it so much better than I do, and mm-hmm. probably don't drop f bombs in the middle of it because I, you know, I have a mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I do walk into lots of buildings and I see people frustrated. I call it frustrated improviser disease. SIDS mm-hmm. can't mm-hmm. be cured, only managed. But, uh, <laughs> but. I like dealing with a frustrated improviser. I like saying, hey, let me remind you that if you're hanging out in the moment, smelling it, touching it, tasting it, feeling it right now, you don't have a lot of time to say, I hate myself, I wish I were never born. Did I leave the stove mm. on last night? You know right. what I mean? You're too busy. So if you're busy, instead of saying, but I've got to balance everything, what if we reframed it and said, you have so many things to be inspired by. Right. Then we could just start playing again. So we really need to simply reframe this stuff and make it much easier for ourselves. And when we demystify that, people just automatically do great. They really do. Yeah. You know, I don't have a better imagination than anybody else. I just throw it out there because I'm playing. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're all just different generations. So I assume that one day we'll all meet on stage, and I just want to make sure our table manners are, you know, in alignment. That's right, all. right. So much of the stuff that I hear that's really breaking down in this sort of rocket science, as you put it, sort of way, like how to do improv, is really just why humor works, why people laugh. It's just like a nerdier way of just figuring out how it all works. But it's not this rule base. It's yeah. not chemistry where, no, this is how it has to be. It's just, no, this is just naturally how it works. And understanding that helps you get it and perform it. And that's why when I hear all these, you know, like the real nerdy stuff that people lay out, I see it true in any kind of comedic work that I see. It's always those points are always there. But when people start applying like, well, this school of thought thinks this, so this is the way you're supposed to do it. Well, no, that's just a way that it works naturally. And if you can get that on a to to a degree that it's second nature then you will perform on a level you want to perform at but it's not about this strict rule-based structure it's it's just not the same as certain things well i think i have to do i think what i deal with is people who have dealt with things on a very strict rule-based structure Mm. and what i've discovered is they're really frustrated Mm -hmm. because they don't want to they don't want to shit on the stage that they're performing at. Right. Look, I think people learn differently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very organic in the way that I work. Rachel, um, when Rachel teaches, she loves charts and graphs because mm-hmm. she's discovered that a lot of her students understand that better. Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand it better, nor could I teach that better that way. But it works for Rachel, and it works for Rachel's students perfectly. So I don't believe that anybody has the right way of doing anything you right. can't play right that kid 
I mean, remember that kid you had to play with when you were little that you had to play with uh-huh. that you hated because they played right. They told you how to play. They told you what character you had to be. They mm-hmm. told you where to fucking stand. They told you you were the prince. They told you, you know, everything. And you're like, oh, God, I can't stand playing with this kid. But our parents are both, you know, my mom, <laughs> our, our moms went to Wellesley together. So now right. we're fucking like what other. And so I don't I, I don't do well with didactic. I do understand mm-hmm. that when you're a computer programmer, there is a right way and a wrong way. When you're a chemical engineer, yes, you get to think outside the box sometimes, but you also have some certain things that you really better do. Mm-hmm. Improv, I guess people could say that that is a part of the, you know, part and parcel, that there are things you have to do. And I'm going, yeah, maybe it does live somewhere in my body that that is a possibility. You know, when you're too busy using your imagination, I, I just don't have time to decide whether it's right or not. So when you go right. back in your head and say, God, I hope this is right or is this okay, I'm just like recommit to what you were just doing. You're right, and now your job is to be more right. I'm not interested in telling people they suck. If they're on stage, they belong there. We just have to figure out how to make them have more fun than anyone else, and then they win. Right. All of a sudden, the work is less. I'm, yeah, 100% with you. I mean, think about those people who've studied for years and years and are really frustrated, and then they're hoping they have a great show Mm -hmm. instead of recognizing they're the architect of their own joy. And I'm not saying that it's perfect for me. I just say the difference between an experienced and an inexperienced improviser is an experienced improviser has fun far more often. Far more often. Yeah. And if you don't have fun, I said, if you don't have fun, you're the asshole, which we recognized showed up on a T-shirt uh, <laughs> in, in North Carolina. I was yeah. surprised in, by that. But that also means I got to go home and check myself at the door as well. Yeah. I don't always have the best time. But what I have learned is I don't want to blame somebody else for my misfortune on stage. Because I have enough experience to be able to use that to feed a scene instead of go, oh, that's shit is not shit everything's a great choice i just have to enjoy it even more you know yeah and i think that's, that's, that's something that you dive right into in the the show that i saw with you and zach the first scene was the two of you on a you know tightly uh, together on a airplane and he's got to get from the aisle to the window seat and he has to step over you and he puts his butt out in your face and you just he did. He started the bit of my butts in your face and against your head, and you just dove right in and just started banging your head against his butt. You know, like it was, and that was immediate. You know, that that was the very first scene of the show. It was the very first thing that happened in the scene, and it was crazy funny. And the audience was just losing it. And I think it was because you both just dove right in and didn't say, oh, what am I supposed to do right now? It was, what's going to be the most fun for me to do right now? Well, I didn't even say what's the most fun thing for me to do. It simply caused me to affect. Mm-hmm. If somebody's butts in your face, you deal with it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I'm not going to stop a scene and say, I'm Susan Messing. How dare you fuck with the integrity of me <laughs> by crossing an imaginary line of what is polite uh, verbal intercourse should be. We should be doing an argument in your apartment scene. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know what I mean? Like, if we're on a plane, I can't wait to see a million things that could possibly happen. And if something happens, 
I'm, I'm going to definitely chase that because it's right in front of us. I don't have to invent anything better than what's happening in front of me right now. And since I can't read your mind, I don't care about what your idea for a scene is. Now, mm-hmm. I can always put a person in your tiresome left brain invented plot, and I do understand that I have a lot of friends who deal with plot, who love plot. I don't care. I'd rather mm-hmm. start with a synapse and be inspired by it. I like I break it down that simply mm-hmm. because the audience isn't like, what a great left brain idea for a scene. <laughs> you know? It's right. like they never say a form like, wow, so many bells and whistles in your form. They don't. They, they're like, ooh, what's that? What, why is she sitting there like that right now? Why is he looking at her with a scowl? I can't wait to find out. You know what I mean? Right. This is you know, better idea. There's nothing better than what's happening. So once you justify that, simply add specificity to exactly what's happening, then we're so happy. We're like, oh, that's why she's sitting that way. <laughs> Which also means when we keep chasing the light of the laugh of funny, Mm-hmm. We're in trouble as well, and we're doing disservice. I'm not saying that when I write sketch or do stand-up or punch up your sitcom script or whatever the fuck I'm doing, um, you know, that I'm not writing for funny. Mm-hmm. But in improv, I get to discover what's funny. As a matter of fact, for that person, there was nothing funny about somebody, like, putting their ass in your face. Right. If you've ever dealt with that on a plane, you're, you know, God bless, you're probably laughing. So mm-hmm. with sympathy, you know, it's sympathy, empathy, and educate, no matter what it is. If you're really trying it on, then the audience gets to be in the moment with you. Otherwise, the audience gets to listen to you make a funny joke, and then they get to decide whether it's funny. It's hard chasing that kind of affirmation. I'm not interested in it. Mm. Yeah, I would agree. It is, it is hard trying to chase that. What do you think it is that keeps people from doing what you're, you're doing, where you're going right into it in the, at the moment, and instead, they hold back or start start getting in their head well, about it. Well, it's improv comedy, right? Mm-hmm. So now they they feel terrified about being responsible for comedy. And I'm not saying that comedy isn't the consequence, but for me, it's not the goal. Mm. So commitment and recommitment are pulling out, you know, of your choices. That's pulling out comedy for me instead of standing around and saying funny shit. Because when I stand around and say funny shit, now I've got to prove it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's going to be a fart and run. I want to fart and go, I farted. Two bean burritos, no cheese, mm-hmm. extra fire sauce, Taco Bell, on Clyborne. Mm-hmm. I just want specificity, because that makes me believe it. So I don't have to stand around and invent a thesis and then prove it. It's, it's, the audience really isn't interested. That, those moments are great moments to write sketch, because then the scene mm-hmm. can go exactly the way you want it to go. Right. I was going to ask you about your training because you have uh, a lot. You started at I.O. Theater after graduating from Northwestern. People can just read this in Mm -hmm. a bio about you. Uh, Northwestern, which had a lot of comedy greats come from it. I believe uh, Seth Meyers went to Northwestern, if I'm correct. Um, Yeah, apparently he was in the first class I taught at I.O. Oh. I studied at I.O. for a long time. Right. And I studied at City, and we founded a theater called The Annoyance. So... It took a long time before um, I felt confident and the people around me felt confident that I would share that. And even then, it mm. came out as an accident. I didn't say, boy, one day I'm going to teach this shit. I, I never. <laughs> never. I never said that. I just didn't want to get kicked off stage. Right. So this was not a goal of mine. This is a consequence of 
me being fascinated by this shit and being grateful I didn't get kicked off stage. Oh, that's awesome. Now, you said Seth Meyers was in your first class. And do you sure. even, do you remember? Yeah, he started 10 years after I did. Mm-hmm. And obviously is 10 years more successful. Um, <laughs> I The first class I taught at I.O. was, um, yeah, because, and the only reason I remember this is because people have reminded me of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had some really awesome people in it, like Seth and Peter Gross and mm-hmm. my friends Dana and Julia were in my first class. And they remind, I mean, I had just taken some weird-ass things that I had created. Uh, Sharna had said to me, I had said to her, I would like to teach for you because I was already teaching for the annoyance. And Sharna said, no, no, you have to be a coach first. And I thought, well, wait a minute, there are people who started five years after me who are teaching. And I was like, well, okay. So I literally took a year and a half off of my life as a performer, and I was coaching three teams simultaneously, which is anathema. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, it's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. And I just created these weird-ass exercises, probably high in my tub. No, definitely high mm-hmm. in my tub. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I just experimented on these fuckers, and then I handed Sharna like, three pieces of, like, 11 by 17 yellow legal patty shit, you know, when in fact, uh, you know, because, of course, for everybody else, it's, it, they can all use computers, but I'm going to use legal pads. Mm-hmm. That's, how, that's how pompous I was. Uh <laughs> And uh, I, she said she bought it, so I got to teach it. So these guys were the guinea pigs of all my shit. Mm-hmm. Like, the first time level two, well, at the time it was level three, existed. So, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I, I've blocked out a lot of it, but people mm-hmm. have told me it was a fascinating class with fascinating people. So there you go. Oh, that's excellent. What, uh, is there something you can... Uh, remember from one of the like just random things that you came up with? Well, I mean, I just remember that IO, IO, the reason I created this curriculum and felt a great need for it was people were standing around and saying clever shit. Mm -hmm. So the only way to heighten funny is to be funnier. And I was like, man, I didn't start this to like watch people do nothing. It's a visual art. So that was just me pining to see more on stage, especially because the people I played with did things. Mm-hmm. So the more you got to, the more you stood around, you know, they always say make discoveries, but you can't make a discovery if you're standing around. I mean, you could notice something, I guess, but doing something is very interesting. Yeah. So I, the more I could um, access that kind of stuff, the, the more it became easier for me as a performer, the more I thought maybe this will be easier for somebody else as well. Like I said, I'm trying to make it easy for people, not harder. Right. You know, I, I could turn this into rocket science, but you, when you watch a kid play joyfully, you're like, oh, he's having so much fun. You don't say he's, he's not playing right. Right, it's yeah. Ridiculous. It's not like these meticulous choices that are made and, you know, <laughs> they're, not, they're not taking all this time measuring something on the side. They're just jumping right in and having fun. Right. Everything you do and say in the scene is a clue. Everything. Mm-hmm. So if you use, reuse, recycle, and repurpose everything, you're going to get off super hard on this stuff. I mean, if you have a grandparent or a parent who has a Depression-era mentality, mm-hmm. I use this as an example, you know, you make chicken, right? And then you make chicken soup, right? And then you use chicken fat to make a schmear on rye toast, right? Mm-hmm. And now we're going to use the wind, now we're going to make the bones into wind shines. Mm-hmm. That's how much I'm pushing the agenda. I'm like, you stay exactly where the fuck you are and then get off on that. And if you don't like it, do it more until you get off on that.
very interesting. Yeah, it is. And each time, each time as a result, it creates comedy. <laughs> so bizarre. So bizarre. <laughs> so, yes, it could be considered formulaic in a sense, but I'm like, it'll never be the same each time. Right. It'll never be the same. I mean, I guess somebody, somebody with an algorithm-type mind could say, well, that means you're doing this, and then this occurs, and then this occurs. But I don't think like that. I'm, I'm delighted to discover what the hell is in front of me. Like, right. I, I just walled on stage and discovered I was in, uh, a, what's it called again, a, um, in a bunker in the war. And th- that's what I discovered from rolling on the stage in that cast. Mm-hmm. Now, I could have said, I'm going to do a war scene right now. And then Rachel starts talking to me in a church. And I'm going to be like, how do I rectify, like, you know, d- d- rationalize the fact that Rachel is uh, in a church and I'm in war? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I guess it could be war church. You know, but I don't, why, why make it so hard? Why right. not just do something and then justify that? She's not going to say, how dare you add specificity to our physical choices? Or nor would I say, how dare you, Rachel, add specificity to uh, my choices? What I really say is, oh, my God, you're so inspired by my shit. I'm so happy. Right. And I'm so inspired by your shit. Like, I just don't judge it. Right. And when I start judging it, means it means I'm simply not doing it enough. Because if I was really doing it more, I don't have time to judge it. Yeah. So when you sort of commit to something, like kind of put your toe in, that's just sort of committing. Mm-hmm. Like, is this okay? And then I'm like, no, no, it's not. Because you're asking about it and worried about it. <laughs> Although I can take your fear as an improviser and turn you into a fearful character. Right. You know, I think uh, one of the things I've run into, and, and I've only been doing improv for three and a half years, and and I, I like to observe things a lot. And one of the things that I've observed in beginners and, you know, people who are on at my stage, like people who've been doing it for three years, uh, it seems that one of the major hang-ups is not observing things, not noticing what they were doing. And I, I've tried to get better at that, and I've tried to encourage other people to just recognize everything that's going on. What is the hang-up? Is it because they're still focused so much on what am I doing and what, you know, and what were the rules? Or what do you think it's, is keeping people from noticing the little nuances that are right there in front of them? Well, it's a real shame if they don't, because the first three seconds of the scene, you've made choices, even if you didn't think you did. Exactly. Um, And I feed on everything from that. That's where I get absolutely everything. But when you go back in your head, you think to yourself, no, I've got to make this difficult. (laughs) So I'm going to come up with an idea and a thesis and a premise, and we're all going to prove it. Or I have nothing. Yeah, of course you have nothing. It's improv. Right. So why freak out by it? So, like I said, I this I totally understand why people freak out. Right. I'm just saying there are option. There are so many options of getting off. You don't have to worry about this anymore. Yeah, I mean that that what triggered that thought was you saying, you know, if you if your scene partner is acting like a scared person because the improviser is scared. That I'm rewording what you said. Then you're gonna make them a scared person in the scene in the world that you have created together because that's what people can observe and that's something that's real for them in that moment and real for you in that moment. Well, the people in this scene are very worried about their audience. They're right. Like, Do they understand what we're doing, what's going on? And I'm saying, you know what your audience is getting off on? What you're doing. Exactly. <laughs> and what, why you're looking that way. Mm-hmm. So maybe you just slow down and taste your food. Just slow down. It's yeah. right in front of you. 
Yeah. You don't have to invent anything better than what is happening right now. Exactly. Now, please understand, when I'm doing sketch, that that's a whole different way to approach it, mm-hmm. you know? And I totally get that. There's so many different ways to access comedy. But when my audience isn't laughing, I've said this many times, it doesn't mean they're not fascinated like a car accident or Christian TV. You ever watch that in the middle of the night and go, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? And you're like, whoa. That's fascinating. Yeah. So when they laugh, it's a closer release of tension. It's not, you know, laugh at my shit, asshole, and then get frustrated with the audience because they didn't laugh at your funny shit. Right. Right. That's why stand-ups get mad at the audience. I do stand-up as well. Well. So many times you hear stand-ups say, like, oh, the audience sucked tonight. It was because they wrote something intending for it to get a laugh, and they got so married to that idea. And then they got mad at the audience? Let me tell you something. The audience got off their flat ass, put down the joint, stopped swiping left and right, and got their ass in a seat. Yeah. Be grateful for your audience. So I agree. when somebody comes to the show, they're delighted to see the ride. Now, granted, make me laugh, asshole, is a premise of stand-up. But let's mm-hmm. say an, uh, a stand-up doesn't get a laugh. You know when a stand-up doesn't get a laugh, and then afterwards they look at the audience and they say, well, that didn't work, and then the audience laughs in recognition. So they do get their laugh. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Instead right. of alienating your audience. Now, granted, I'm not saying that you can't have a funny persona of an angry comic. Mm-hmm. That's a persona. But if you have an angry comic, you're kind of like, I didn't come here to be berated and treated like shit. Like right. it played perfectly and it played perfectly in Akron and you assholes in Tallahassee don't get it. <laughs> yeah, so I've maybe, seen that one a couple of times where someone does say like, Oh, well, that worked well at such and such place. Uh, you know, like I had that happen to me. I, I did uh at the time there was something called the HBO US Comedy Festival in Aspen mm-hmm. and I did this dumb dumb routine with a puppet named Jolly, mm-hmm. which still exists somewhere in nature. And <laughs> And it killed. It was all very inside Hollywoody stuff because, you know, the Hollywood people got excited about, I'm going to see snow in Aspen, you know. So they're delighted and they thought my shit was hysterical. And then I ended up doing it for something called Premium Blend on Comedy Central. And the audience, it was like crickets. Mm. Like crickets. Because actually, the, the smart comedians, the, the people who were far more better at stand-ups than I were, looked at the audience and went, oh, man, I can't do my regular shit. I'm going to do student um, student loans and, you know, textbook jokes because they were all college kids. And mm-hmm. then they did it, and they got huge laughs. And I did my, you know, thing where it took me two years to write a joke for this stupid puppet, and, and they all just stared at me. And I wasn't going to blame the audience. I was like, I don't have enough expertise in stand-up to recognize my audience and adjust my material to support that. I don't have to do that in improv. Improv is very universal. Yeah. You know, puberty is the same in Pakistan or LaGrange, Illinois. You know? <laughs> yeah. That, that's one of the fun things about going to different regions and getting getting a, a laugh for the same sort of ideas because it's relatable in all these different places. I think that's a great thing about art in general is that there's so many things that kind of that we all relate to. And laughs everywhere sound the same. Sympathy, empathy, educate. No matter what, you're interested because it's on stage. Right. It's not prove it, bitch. (laughs) It's, ooh, this is interesting. You know what I mean? What are they doing? What's that about? It's not, ugh, I don't understand this. They're like, what is this? And they try to figure it out along with you. 
And frankly, the audience sometimes comes to different conclusions than I do. People mm-hmm. will come up to me after a show and tell me something about the socio-political something-something of something I've mentioned, and I'm thinking, shit, I didn't go there. Bless your heart, you know? <laughs> like, I just, I just kind of thought, I was just thinking... I don't know what I was thinking. I was just doing something. I'm glad you came up. You know, when you put something on stage, somebody's going to judge it, good, bad, or ugly, or or have an opinion about it. And I don't have time to think about their opinions about it. I'm just too busy doing it. That's all. Right. I mean, granted, granted, there are certain places that have... Um, Rachel and I did a tough show in Boston once, and it was only because we hadn't told the the people who were at Improv Boston, we hadn't told, they they said to us, how do you want us to intro you? And we were like, oh, I'll just do your intro. So they did the intro to their own show, which is completely <laughs> different because they were doing short form games. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, and now Rachel and Susan, the boys. And we came out and did what we did and they were staring at us like, wait a minute, we're supposed to get audience participation all the time and we're supposed to do mm-hmm. those short form games and I've got a team tour here and a bachelorette party. And they're staring at us like, what is this? And it took, I would say, over half the show for them to kind of shift their focus because they had been told there was something else. Now, right. And it wasn't Improv Boston's fault. I actually turned to Rachel afterwards and said, wow, we've got to kind of tell them how to prepare for us. Right. And when, when you set it up that way, then their, their mind shifts. And even if they've never seen this before, they kind of go, oh, this is what it is. Got it. Right. You know I I mean? th- yeah, absolutely. I think it's that setup that's so important. That's why what happens in the first three seconds of a scene are, are so important. And if you're not aware of what you're doing, then you're going to kind of be off from what the audience is expecting. The first three seconds of the scene, the audience has made a decision as to who you are mm-hmm. because you've made choices. You, Whether you realize and it or even not. If you didn't think, right. Some of those choices are unconscious. So mm-hmm. I'm saying, why don't you make a conscious choice and run with it? Remember, you've got yourself to be inspired by, but you've also got your world to be inspired by right. and your friend to be inspired by. Right, right. The thing I have, uh, and I'm kind of restating things that we've already talked about here, but the thing that I have thought for a while and have tried to encourage in anyone I was coaching or, or teaching was that that first moment where you're just walking out on stage, whether you, if, you're not, if you don't have an idea, so you don't have a conscious decision, there's still things happening. And you kind of have to be aware of that. You know, that's, it's got to, it's kind of like what uh, is in McNapier's book of do something and then check out what you did. So if you walked out a certain way, just be aware of how you walked out because that's what everybody saw and that's what you look like. And as you said just a second ago, the audience has made a decision on who you are. They've they've got an understanding now. So you got to connect to that. You've got to, recognize what it is that that is that that was that you just did and if you don't then you're doing a different scene than what everyone else is thinking is happening in a lot of cases again if you have an idea for a scene go write it because then you can absolutely control the outcome right and then you don't have to say wow i god i wish you didn't you know you really should have you know psychically figured out what i wanted I mean, I've had people after a show say to me, man, I can't believe you did exactly what I wanted in that scene. And I said, wow, I'm glad I did exactly what you wanted in that scene, too. But if I didn't do exactly what you wanted in that scene, it would have been fine. Because it's our scene. Right. Not your scene. Because you started it. <laughs> who, who does that shit? I was, 
Don't start that to play your shit. Let's start it to play our shit. Yeah. Discover I, what our shit is. Yeah. So maybe I'm a purist in that way, and that's okay. I'm just saying that when I started working this way, I stopped being disappointed that people couldn't read my mind. Yeah. I think, um, I'm not trying to get into improv world politics here, but I know that there is a disagreement for, to a certain degree with a particular school of thought that has a specific rule of if someone starts a scene, then it's it's kind of their scene to start. And it's uh, you go with their idea and run with it. Well, are you talking about UCB? Yeah, I have heard someone from UCB say it, and I've actually heard it from uh, a couple other theaters as well. Look, I love, I love UCB. Those guys right. can teach you how to write on your feet like a motherfucker. And they're really writing live sketch, in a sense. And yeah. the first weird, odd, strange thing that somebody invents is the game, and then we fuck it till it's dead. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm fine with that. I, I'll play your game. You can't control me. Ah. So I'm going to put my person in your in your plot. Um, Besser uh, did uh, Improv for Humans, a live show mm-hmm. at the San Francisco Improv Festival. And I was like worried about it because I was like, shit, I hope I can play the game and not fuck it up. And I had never played with him or Bob Dassey together at all. And um, I ended up having a wonderful time. First of all, because it was a live radio show. So mm-hmm. the the... The expectation was there's going to be a table and mics and how exciting that we all get to be a part of this live radio show. So the fact of doing something organically really didn't matter. Do you know what I mean? You want to come up with an idea? I'll run with it. I have no problem with that. But when I play on stage, I don't give a shit about your rules and I don't give a shit about chess. Mm-hmm. Improv is not chess for me because otherwise I wouldn't want to do it because this is my joy time. So why would I make life harder for myself? I can still play your game, but I also have a game for me and a game for the way I deal with the world. So I can do the, these situational problems, you know, or whatever the hell it is, um, your idea, I can play that and still be true to myself, mm-hmm. but it's not the way I work. And when I do messing with a friend, I'm playing with a different person every single week. Right. And when I'm doing Molly I'm play, or the boys, I'm playing with people I play with all the time. So, And even then, I have no expectations on Rachel or Norm Holly. I'm not going to say, oh, Norm will probably respond like this, and I'm disappointed if you can't read my mind. I'm like, I can't wait to create with Norm. I can't wait to create with Rachel, and I can't wait to see what my new friend will bring to the table. And it's each building has a different focus, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I'm going to honor that. So when I'm playing with UCB, with, with Besser, I mean, Jesus, he's the founder of UCB. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to honor what he does. Look, I also, and I, you know, if I had a choice between short form and long form, I would do long form all the time, not short form. But then again, I remember doing a short form show a few years ago and going, God, there's a lot of integrity in short form. And I'm not going to poo-poo it just because it's not my favorite. It's a muscle I'm going to have to work. Mm-hmm. I'm going to Portugal in April, and uh, some guy just asked me to do his show. Um, it's called Impro Lightbox, and you're affected by lights on stage, I guess. 
And I'm thinking, well, I've never done that before. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm 53 years old. I could just say, fuck this shit. I'm out of here. I don't want to do that. <laughs> but I'm kind of like, there's a part of me that's freaked by it. So that means I have to do it. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? I have fun. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And, and what's the worst thing that's going to happen if you fuck up an improv? If you repeat that mistake, that's one of your greatest comic gifts. So I kind of have to say, well, walk your talk, bitch. Each day I am forced to, like, rub my face in my own theorems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I've said to be, I said it to last night to a first class at the annoyance. I said, when I walk my talk, I have more fun than anybody else. But when I don't, I suck as much as if I'd started 30 minutes ago instead of 30 years ago. I mean, we're fucking human here. This ain't, that's why I don't want to make it rocket science and foolproof. Right. My mistake has been joyful. I come off stage and go, you guys, there was a lean cuisine in every scene. What the fuck? <laughs> like, that's my joy 30 years later, which is kind of sad, but kind of awesome <laughs> that I still can remember how light and amazing you can feel after a show as opposed to, yeah, it's another class, just another rehearsal, just another show, man. I hope I do a scene with that good person. Everybody is great. Everybody can be absolutely great. So if I poo poo and roll my eyes at something that I don't normally do, then I've denied myself the possibility of learning. Like I said, I got to throw my, you know, people are like, you're such a teacher. And I'm like, fuck, man, I got to roll my face in that shit. Yeah. Turn it into a Or Zach Ward's butt. Or Zach Ward's butt. <laughs> and, and, you know, Rachel said to me after the show, she went, man, Zach was fucking with you. And I thought to myself, I didn't notice that he was fucking with me. But I guarantee you that somebody else who was less experienced might have been like, he was fucking with me. Mm. I just enjoyed every minute of it. I thought I it was great. It had been like you all had been performing together for years. Why not make the assumption? I right. my it, there's remember in life you don't assume trust. You earn trust. Mm-hmm. In improv we assume trust. So I'm gonna go to Portugal and play with a bunch of people I've never fucking met and go, I'm just gonna assume it's good. And as a matter of fact, my friend Maria Peters from London is going to be there, so she's gonna do my show. She's never done my show before. I my assumption is I can't wait to fucking play with Maria. Can't wait. That's really great. I, that's a new, a new great thought uh, that we in improv we assume trust. Well, here's the thing: you can blame humpy boy and creepy girl for all your scenes gone wrong, right? <laughs> and finally, they're kicked off your team. And the common denominator is you guys who kicked them off the team. Yeah. So what's going to happen is the next time you're going to be the scapegoat, or you've just narrowed your world because you've like I can't play with anybody but this person. I'm not saying that there's that I don't have favorites. I sure do. Some people are like playing with butter. Like, you know, when, when butter has been left on the counter and it's so easy on toast and you're like, man, why do I deal with refrigerated butter all the time? <laughs> I can fucking deal with how easy it is. I didn't rip my toast or anything. This is really fucking great. When you have these dumbass, stupid epiphanies. Mm-hmm. But we can make our lives easier from the top. Instead of tensing up for a show, maybe relax your crack. Enjoy the ride. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's fair to have favorites. That's just life. There are certain people that you click with and, and uh, you meet and they're kindred spirit and certain people that you don't. And that's just life and that's normal and that's fine. Somebody You're, somebody reposted a podcast I did a few years back and I've done so many, I have no idea even what I've done. Like mm-hmm. I'm like, so I was kind of like, ooh, I should listen to this again because somebody reissued something from a while back for 
International Women's Day. I think it was the back line with Adam mm-hmm. uh, Crowley and, and those guys in Toronto. And I listened to it, and I couldn't believe how angry I seemed. Mm. I was like, man, I was in a bad mood that day. I might want to reconsider, because I was just frustrated. Like, what the fuck are you doing, fuckers? Like, why are we making it so fucking hard on ourselves? <laughs> when, and I just listened to it, and I was like, dear God, you were really passionate about that a few years back. <laughs> you got to chill when you talk to people on, on like radio. This shit lasts forever. Because my daughter's going to listen to this when I'm dead and go, <laughs> Mom, stop it. Like, what, relax. <laughs> make them up. You know, <laughs> right? It's so not you, rocket science. It's not healthcare. Yeah, like why are we getting so angry sometimes? It's good. It's great to be passionate about it. Sometimes it turns negative and gets us uh, passionately angry. Yeah, uh, let's enjoy. Let's let's ruin makeup ups now. Let's really ruin it <laughs> by ripping it to shreds and then like reconstituting it. I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, where's the kidding? fun? That's what. That's why even now I'm. It makes me super, it makes me sad more than angry that people really need sometimes to turn this into rocket science. Yeah. But I do understand that some people learn better with rocket science. So I can't even judge that. I'm just saying it simply doesn't work for me. Yeah. But that's I can totally fine. Yeah. I think that's ultimately why there are different theaters and different improv theaters and schools of thought is that some people think that way. I don't like it when people say, like, no, this is the way. Yeah, for you, but somebody well, else thinks I'll, differently. Yeah, absolutely. There's, look, in Chicago, there's a million different schools of thought, and mm-hmm. I bounce through all of them because I do think that um, certainly a thesis of all the buildings is we want you to have fun. So they're like, right. oh, shit, messing will do that, or messing will break down your bullshit. That's fine. Um, I know the annoyance started... At, in a sense, because Mick, certainly, when I was taught by him, he has a really interesting, twisted, perverse sensibility that I think Sharna was kind of like, that is an I.O. I.O. is intelligent comedy, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there's whimsy and Dadaistic and mm-hmm. strangeness and perverse and twisted worlds um, might appear ugly in some places and completely protected and hysterical in other places. So for me, it's not just like, I'm a creator, deal with it, fucker. I'm highly aware of uh, what time of day we're doing this. Mm-hmm. You know? I've mm. been said to people, like, I've had to do messing with a friend in a 7 p.m. slot in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. And I said, you guys, you asked for messing with a friend. I was freaking out. And they're like, you'll be fine. And I'm thinking, no, there might be an 11-year-old in the house. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I played with certain people in somewhere like Kansas City, I said, we got to really make sure up top in the intro that we protect content so that people are able to laugh. Mm. And so I kind of, you know, I initiated slowly and tell them, uh, I said, I'm Mark Sutton. What is messing with a friend described as? And so they joyful, uncensored, and improvised romp through hell. Because that's, I wrote that many years ago as a thesis for this show. <laughs> and so the audience starts laughing. <laughs> excuse me, because they know it's an earlier time slot that I'm used to doing. And then they went on board because right. they knew, oh, she's playing. She might be playing creepily, but she's playing, you know? Right. It sets them up for what to expect. It's like when Nana, you know, if you have a Nana with dementia and she just all of a sudden pulls up her, her blouse and shows you her breast and you're like, no, no. You know what I mean? Oops, right. Sorry, I'm coming call. I have no idea who you are. Oh, the Nielsen ratings called us. Oh. How exciting. You know what? 
why don't I why don't I play like I'm really young? Hold on. Okay. I'm gonna answer this. Let's see. Maybe it'll just be a message. Hey. Hello. 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 Is calling. My name's Kim. My mommy. My mommy is my mommy's in the bathroom. Okay. Is there another household member there that I can speak with? No, my mommy's in the bathroom. Okay, we'll call back at a later time. You have a good day. You have a good day. <laughs> who doesn't say? Who doesn't say to an adorable child, "Why thank you"? Well, maybe she was just confused because most <laughs> people are like, "Kill yourself." You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to stifle a lot of laughter for that. So. <laughs> my mom, my actually, my uh, my daughter loves when I do that on the phone because there's just like, oh, get off the phone. Like when the police benevolence society calls or whatever the fuck it, you know that is, mm-hmm. and part of you is like, no, it isn't. It's a guy named Shad, you know, masturbating, going, oh, I'm gonna take some money from somebody. Please give me your social security number. You know, I, like so when I'm really sweet and. I mean, that child was a little special, but I think some other kids are just super sincere and older. Let me write down your name and your number. You know, like, I'll just go on for as long as it takes. But I have friends who really deal with, like, they used to get serious at people who, you know, were doing scams and trying to take people's money and stuff. And mm-hmm. now what they'll do is they'll talk on the phone. Uh, my friend John Matta does it and a bunch of other people where they'll be on the phone with them and they'll just talk about their problems for a while and then say they're going to get their checkbook and then they go, oh, no, no, wait, I closed this account forward. Hold on a second. And then they keep them on the phone mm-hmm. for like 20 minutes while they, you know, check their email and stuff like that and then come back and go, I don't, I don't know where it is, man, but wait, hold on just a minute. And then they keep <laughs> them on forever. So it's, improv is a wonderful way to cure uh, evil. Yeah, and, a, and like, you know, that example that you gave, they went from maybe that ruining their day or putting them in a really bad headspace during the day to them having the most fun. Well, they also dealt with, they also dealt with a, with a sweet young child. Mm-hmm. Now, some people might say, Susan, this seems a little sibyl. Uh, something's <laughs> wrong with you. And I'm like, no, I don't really feel like that. There's no need for me to talk to the Nielsen family. Mm-hmm. But I could have fun. Right. Yeah, you get to have fun, you know, and if someone who, like your friends who get a call that uh, would normally anger them, instead of being angry, they're having fun. Everyone has fun. You have so much improv knowledge, and you you spent time at Second City, you spent a lot of time at I.O., you still perform there, and you're one of the, no, did you co-found, is that the right word, Annoyance Theater? Yeah, I was a founding member of the Annoyance. I was on the Second City main stage. I still perform at Second City once a month with the boys. Mm-hmm. I still perform every week at the Annoyance, and I perform every week at I.O., yeah. And these are so, three of the juggernaut schools of improv. And yeah. obviously that has given you a lot of, of knowledge and experience about improv and how to do it and how to teach it. How do you feel that experience has been? I mean, how did it seems like it was early on... I'm not sure when you started at I.O., but... I.O. was, was five years old, and it wasn't called I.O. It was called Improv Olympic. Improv Olympic, right. And the Herald, was, the Herald as a performance, uh, as, opposed, as opposed to a, um, an experimental form, mm-hmm. as a solid performance form, was five years old at best. Right. Um, 
and you know, some of those guys are still around, you know, like still learning and doing great stuff. Like I, you know, I used to watch Pasquese and Bill Russell and all these guys on Baron's Barracudas, which was like the first breakout team. And mm-hmm. I watched Grime and Punishment and a bunch of other stuff. And, you know, it, it it, 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 looking back at the work now, it seems very archaic and crunchy, um, but it has to start from somewhere. And I have to say, I've never been beholden to anybody's um, curriculum. So right. even though I've learned a lot from other people and other teachers, I really kind of did my own thing, and I teach it. I get a lot of, I have a lot of trust from the people uh, who run these theaters, and I really, really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um and and frankly, from working in all the theaters, I have discovered that I need to work at all the theaters. Otherwise, I will get involved in the politics and be really annoying. So it's actually made me a better human being to spread myself everywhere. When I was just doing one theater at a time, I went home crying every night. And then I did all three and I stopped crying. And I went, oh, that's weird. Well, let's do that. It was <laughs> so, because you were able to stretch yourself in all these different ways and you were more satisfied. I was satisfied, but I also didn't care about bullshit. If right. you're only in one building, bullshit becomes super important because mm. it's the bullshit. And I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to say that it's not important. I'm saying that it becomes overwhelmingly predominant. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that when I work everywhere, I get to honor the buildings that I'm in. Everyone owns me. Nobody owns me. Everybody owns me. And then I can thank them, love them, and leave. Mm-hmm. Um and then you get the best of me instead of the worst of me. And and also gives me a little more perspective uh, so that people do respect maybe a little more of what I'm up to. I'm not always in their ass. I'm saying, you know, I noticed this. Uh, how, how can we, I, how can we improve this? Or I have a suggestion, you know, on, on how we might make this better. But I mean, I was a really pain in the ass young improviser and how I so? had a lot to learn. What do you, pain in the ass. Oh. <laughs> Ask, probably ask the people I started with. Probably I would say, Sharna would say I was too nice. She even mentioned it yesterday. I saw her yesterday. And she mentioned, oh, people, you know, she went home crying every night. And people, and she'll say I'm a bitch. No, she'll say, she said something like, um, yeah, she, no, she even said, and you said I was a bitch. And I, and I said, yeah, and you said I was a pussy. So we're, hmm. all, we're all equal here. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And believe me, if she didn't want me in her building, if she didn't trust what I did, she wouldn't have what I did. I actually quit a couple of years ago. Um, I quit IO. And, and one reason I did, I didn't like the working, I didn't like what I was getting paid for. And I wanted to quit and didn't quit because I thought, who's going to handle my uh, my curriculum? Everybody else is going to have to teach double mint twins get fucked up the ass. This is, it's not going to be easy. And I thought, how can I leave my curriculum? And one day I just decided, you know what? I'm an improviser. They can have my curriculum. I'll, I'll fucking make up something new tomorrow. I'm an improviser. Right. Because when I'm at the annoyance, I'm making up new exercises every fucking week. I am making up something new. So I'm like, well, if I can make up something new, I'll make up something new. But this has become untenable for me. And mm. nine months later, she turned to the head of the training center at the time and she said, let her have whatever she wants. Now, maybe it took her nine months. Maybe she didn't even realize time passed. But it was a very peaceful nine months for me, and I was okay with my decision. Mm-hmm. I was very okay with it. I could walk into her building and perform, but maybe I didn't want to teach for a while there. And I'm fine with it now. And now, I'm, of course, I've been back again for a couple of years, and I have exactly what I want to be able to do what I want. So 
I'm very happy with that. Would but, you the, but there are times where, where you'll get, where you'll have a pushback, you know, for something that you want or feel that you deserve. Right. And, um, and mine was, I felt it was, it was very reasonable. I don't ask for unreasonable things. So when it was reasonable and rejected, as opposed to working with me, I, something in me finally went, great, then I don't have to be there instead of what maybe I would have done in the past, which is, I don't have to be there. <laughs> right. What advice would you give to the young improviser who maybe they're crying every night when they go home or they just don't have the confidence that you seem to have now? If they're on stage, they belong there. They're, they belong there. They'll crack the code. When I went home crying every night, it was because there was a part of me that's like, I can't do it now, but I know one day I can do this shit. I was right. The little voice in me that says I want to do this or I can do this or I could be great at this was right. I just had to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes easier and easier. I, you know, I don't want to blame schools of thought for me not doing well. I don't want to blame people for not teaching me right. You know what I mean? I just like each, and frankly, each teacher, I had a few, I had two teachers who have taught me how to teach in a sense by me not liking the way they taught. You know? Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that seems didactic and absolute. Mm-hmm. I guess I don't, I get, and I remember thinking, well, one day I'm going to be a teacher and I'm not going to do that to my students. Why did I say that? Because I didn't think I was going to be a teacher. But I obviously held that held that thought and thought, well, if I were studying with somebody, I wouldn't want to learn that way. That doesn't please me. Mm-hmm. You know, but sometimes you will also have a really tough teacher and everybody's like, but you got to take this person. You have to. You can't get to the next level until you take this asshole person. Then I'm going, okay, then I'm going to learn how to separate the message from the messenger. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. Know? Although, frankly, I think that if you are a teacher and you've reached your point of saturation where you're super frustrated... Um, maybe it's time to take a break. As a matter of fact, I wrote a I wrote a book a few years ago that thankfully I didn't publish because I'd be raked over the coals for it because I did not appreciate evolution as much as I probably should have, mm-hmm. which is good. Um, that it didn't get published. Mm-hmm. As, like I said, people who've been raked over the coals, I would have probably been raked over the coals even more. Mm. So I evolved. But anyway, Part of me just wants to go, just write it the fuck down, Susan, so you don't have to say this shit anymore in case there's something else you'd like to do with your life, mm-hmm. which I'm sure there is. But I do love what I do, and I do love who I'm doing it with, and that's my idea of success. And until I figure out something else that I really want to do with my life, I will continue to do this. But if I reach a point where I'm like, I am resenting my students, I, am, I don't want to be on stage, or whatever the hell it is, I will have to take that break because I will have poisoned joy. Right. You know? So sometimes people just have saturated themselves so much with this that maybe they just simply need to take a break. I've had people, to, I've suggested that people take breaks. They've taken breaks and they've come back and they've been a million times better than had they taken three or four more classes. Now that's fucking with my income structure <laughs> and I don't even care. I'd rather them get off than not. Yeah. I don't care. You know what I mean? I'm like, nope. And they just automatically by hanging out in the world with real-life fucking people, gotten to be better people and better performers. Strange. By osmosis. Sometimes I, you need to simply take a break and get a life. I like that. 
I think this is a good time to transition into the end of the podcast where we create something. But I am interested in this book. Uh, you don't have to talk about what the book was because I don't want you to get raked over the coals. But if no, 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 no. It was, oh. it was simply, it was simply, I just wrote down my shit. But there were some topics of my shit that, once again, almost like when I said that podcast where I was super angry, mm-hmm. the whole book was super angry. I see. The book was like, like the book was get over yourselves. But like okay. for frustrated improvising disease, uh-huh. but it it was just hateful. Right. Like, nobody wants to read a book where they just get yelled. At. Like I was the teacher who just said, "Suck it up, bitch." When in mm-hmm. fact, people shouldn't have to suck it up. People still need environments that are conducive to learning. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? I'm right. like, well, it sucks. Get over it. Like I'm. I was horrible. I was horrible on my chapter with women. I was horrible on, I was just horrible on everything. I was horrible because I was just over it. I was like, tell it to your drumming circle. I'm over it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. And I was like, there was just some, and I was like, great. That could have been published for fucking posterity. And I would have been, pardon my French, cunt city population me. And everybody would have been like, don't even go near mess. And she's awful. So we're all learning. Yeah, and and it really was simply because I was procrastinating, and I thought to myself, I don't want to edit this shit. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, if I don't want to edit this shit, I probably don't want to publish this shit. You know what? This is shit. So why don't you get the essence of what this shit's about, all the nutrients, without all the smelly shit parts? So maybe one day I'll write it down. Yeah, so that's Sooner the thing. Later, so I can die. I think uh, I think the improv world needs a Susan Messing book. Uh, I think there's plenty that we can learn from you. And, uh, I mean, we've and only scratched the surface in book? this. I mean, seriously, though. Like, that's the other thing, too. People spend all this time writing about improv and talking about mm-hmm. improv. And I'm kind of going, I just want to do it. <laughs> I get that. I totally get that. But I just love hearing about it. I love hearing about it I from people you like do. you. And I love that you do. You're giving me far more integrity than I deserve. So I appreciate it. <laughs> Well, let's. We usually create something at the end. If let's uh, make that the topic. Like, if there was a book that you would write, what it would be? Maybe we could do that. That's fine with me. Cool. I, I mean, I have an idea for the book of I was writing about. If you want to know about it, but this, but you want to write, you want to improvise, right? Yeah. Let's just like come up with something. Something uh, that maybe uh, is only kind of on your mind. Something that you haven't. Uh, laid out as thoroughly as a previous idea. Like if there is something you well, think the improv world needs now, what do you think it is? Oh, more doing, less talking about. <laughs> It'd be very ironic to write a book about that. <laughs> Wait, exactly, right? No, actually, my book was about frustrated improviser disease. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but... Because I love the frustrated improviser because half of your shit that you're pissed off about, we could cure right now. Right. You know what I mean? With like dynamo tiffy phrases. You'd be like, shut up. That makes sense. Why am I making so hard on myself? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That kind of shit. But what if I we wrote like a guide? Really- what if there was a guide? Because there are a lot of books out there about like how to do yeah. improv. But what if, yeah. if we're trying to encourage people to do it more than read about it, think about it? Um, what are some of the pitfalls that people run into in trying to do it? And not necessarily being on stage, but just going to a theater and starting over again or starting a brand new and improv and and then they get on a team. And then, like, uh, 
and they want more stage time, like maybe those sort of topics. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. You know, but remember when, like, it's really hard to get me to a movie. It's mm-hmm. really hard to get me to a movie. I don't know why it is. Maybe it's because we have Netflix. Maybe it's because my home is super cozy now. But I'm just, <laughs> I'm, seriously, my home is super cozy now. And I'm like, Ugh, I don't want to go to a movie. You have to get up and then you have to drive there and you have to park. And blah. But then I, like, if it takes forever for me to get to a movie. Then when I get to a movie, I'm like, shut up. I'm at a movie. This is so cool. Oh my God, they gave me popcorn. Shut the fuck up. This is awesome. So we actually have to be talked into joy now. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe because life is such a struggle, we have to be talked into joy now. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. Yeah. It's so fucking sad. But then there has to be like a TEDx so talk about <laughs> just getting yourself into enjoying things. Well, I did one a few years ago, and honestly, it was really fucking rough to write it. Mm-hmm. I was like, once again, let me, remember I said I do things that I'm not, like, that I don't want to do, that somebody thought I could do. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of like, ugh. If they ask me to do it, there's a reason for it. I just don't know why yet. Unless it really hits me, like, for some sort of moralistic reasons that I can't do it. I, I will absolutely do it. Like I said, I did that light box show. I'm going to do that part, that thing in Portugal. I'm like, shit, why the fuck not? I'm going to be in Portugal, you know? What the mm-hmm. fuck? So I was teaching at the University of Chicago, and one of my ex-students said, I'm on the committee at the University of Chicago for TED Talks. Uh, would you do one? And I know TED Talks are like a big thing and that mm-hmm. people learn from them and shit, but I never did because I'm from a different world. Mm-hmm. And I, I like, you know what I mean? When you hear what the latest craze is and you're like, good for you, like computers <laughs> for me. In the past, I'm like, but my legal pad. And you're like, no, honey, you're going to have to learn how to, I have to learn how to use a computer. <laughs> so I did. But even then, I'm always very late to the game. Mm-hmm. So I had to write this speech and like, then they have to see it before you do it. You know, because they have to decide if it's okay and how you have to change it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, fuck. So I actually had to, like, I had to do PowerPoint. And, of course, that ex-student did it for me because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I don't know PowerPoint, you know. And I was like, Jesus. <laughs> and, and I was so happy to have, I was like, slides. I'm so I was in my late 40s. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I have slides. How cool is that? Like, <laughs> the stupidest shit pleased me. But then I had to fight for the one joke I had in it because they're like, that's not Ted Talkie. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, you asked me because I'm Susan Messing and they told me not to be me. Don't be yeah, yeah. I fought for my right for my slide. I got my slide in and I was so happy because in the history of Ted Talks, I know there's nobody else that has a slide that says anal probe by aliens. <laughs> right? I, I can't believe they you had to fight for that. I sure did have to fight for anal probe by aliens. Oh my but gosh. It, I got it in. The important thing was I got this one. <laughs> but I'm like, people are like, you did a TED Talk. I'm like, I know, I got a slide and it said anal probe by aliens. And they're like, Jesus, Susan, fucking grow up. <laughs> like, there's a, there's, this is a big problem. I just answered the phone as a, as an, as a four-year-old. Uh, yeah. because, because if she was eight, she would have been out of school that day. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> she had to be four. That's hilarious. <laughs> no, it's not. A, it's just wrong. On so many levels. Yeah, but I think that's what makes it funny. You're funny. Well, thank you. Um, thank you, Jason. Ooh. Well, I think joy is something that we do have to 
fight for almost. Is there a a trick to not having to fight for it? You know what? I have to say you do have to fight for your right to party because mm-hmm. this world is so ludicrous right now and it's super scary. And I broke my ankle in December, so I had a nice chunk of time to, like, sit on my flat ass eating sleeves of cookies that I hated mm-hmm. and getting just simply fat and sort of depressed. Mm-hmm. So I remember I used to wake up in for the eight years that George Bush was president and think, wow, I have a low-grade flu. Now I yearn for those days, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> so where, where he was president. No, I yeah. Mean, this- now it's interesting to look back and people are like, oh, wow. He wasn't so bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're already waking up sometimes at a deficit. Right. Whether you're waking up because a friend of yours is, is saying, I can't get back into the country, or mm-hmm. you're righteously indignant about, as I hear sirens. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. ironic. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's become scary-ish sort of semi-police state, and other countries are shrugging their shoulders and saying, yeah, bitch, we've had to deal with human rights abuses like left and right for decades, forever and ever. Right. And decades, fucking hundreds of years. Or, oh, yeah, I mean, it depends what we're talking about. Afri- or my uh, friends who are African-American say, you know, now you recognize struggle? Fuck you. You know, I mean, like, there's a lot going on, and it's heavy. So mm-hmm. that's why I say you fight for your right to party. And that's why I say that if you can separate the part of you that's, like, really scared as a human being about what's happening with the human condition and then get on stage and still have fun, you know, you've, you've used improv for good, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot, because like I said, people who, people who get off their asses and come in chairs, come in, you know, come in chairs and sit down and watch your show are, are they need the escape. They need the joy and they really need even the sociological study of the human condition. I think this shit is. So they're like, good, you'll do it for me. So I can just have a close of release of tension right now. There's a great deal of responsibility in that, I think. And and your responsibility to figure out joy again. Enjoying the little things, too. You know? Maybe that could be the name of the book, Figure Out Joy Again. I do teach a class called Back on the Joyride when I go... Oh, that would be even better. Back Back on the Joyride. You like that one? I like it. Yeah. But I think people are like, yeah, okay, whatever, messing. Waste paper. We'll make it an (laughs) e-book. Yes. Well, there it is. Thanks so much for yes. being on the podcast. This was a really great talk. Oh, well, you're very sweet. I really appreciate your time, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. I hope I didn't just shit in the breeze. <laughs> Absolutely not. She did not. She gave so much wisdom there. I just had to end the discussion with her saying such a Susan messing line. Um, but she absolutely did not. She, she gave so much wisdom. I learned a ton and I really appreciated having her on the podcast. I hope you did as well. And I hope you learned a lot. It's great to be able to talk to somebody that you share a passion with and especially at length like this. So I am very thankful for her time and her humor and her awesomeness. And my gosh, that phone call, that was so hilarious to me. She took, she took that phone call as a little kid. But honestly, if a little kid on the other line says, you have a good day, you say, thank you. You have a good day, too. That's how you handle that situation, people. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that episode. Don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. Also, you can follow us on social media, Twitter and Facebook at There It Is Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason Far Jokes, and you can go to thereitispod.com to find out some more information about this wonderful podcast. 
Again, it's wonderful because of the guests. Next week is another wonderful guest. It's Jeremy McClellan from Charleston, South Carolina, a fantastic stand-up comic who's getting a lot of attention online and touring around the country. You should check that episode out. It is chock full of some good stuff, really good talk. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr.